So, since you have your Bibles with you, if you would open to 1 John chapter 3, and we will be reading three verses to begin, verses 8 through 10 in chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Father, now as we continue, I pray that you would help me, Lord, to deliver your word in all of its truth, and it would, Lord, affect my heart as much as it does everyone who is here this morning, Lord, to turn our hearts, to remember all your goodness, all your provisions, all your truth, Lord, that you have delivered us to us, Lord, even in these few verses and the others that we will go through this morning. Thank you, Lord. And I do pray, God, that it would be to the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. So, this morning, we will be focusing on the enemy of your soul, who is described four times in these three verses. That is, the devil, or Satan, as he is called in Scripture, along with his fellow evil enemies. This passage reveals three important things. That the devil has been around since the beginning, that Jesus appeared to destroy his works, and that whoever makes a practice of sinning is a child of the devil. Now let me say right away that this is a topical sermon, not exegetical. So I won't be going verse by verse through the scripture I read, but will refer to it and others as we continue. We begin with a quote by C.S. Lewis. Humanity falls into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they do not take him seriously enough. The devil shouldn't be the focus of our lives or an obsession, but we must always be certain of his existence, who he is, what he is like, and what he does to both believers and non-believers. So today, we shall review. Take sickness, for example. 
There are places where a sickness is clearly attributable to the devil. When the Pharisees are berating Jesus for a Sabbath healing, Jesus rebukes them about healing a crippled woman whom Satan bound for 18 years. Yet other places, there's no indication Satan is involved. At Peter's house, Jesus simply touched Peter's mother's hand and the fever left her. But in another case, anger can begin to involve the devil. Paul warns of sinful anger, saying, don't let the day end while you are still angry. Give no opportunity to the devil. Now, if you were told there is an army outside the building waiting to attack you, you would, of course, prepare to deal with it. And what if the army was invisible, craftier than you, exceedingly evil, determined always to destroy you and would never, ever go away, then preparation would be paramount. Now, if one is a true born-again child of God, you ultimately can't be destroyed in the eternal sense, although possibly badly hurt by this enemy. But if you are not, you can't be offered any sense of comfort or relief or protection about this enemy doing you great harm. Satan is the accuser or adversary, and that is almost a nice way of describing him, your adversary in all things. He is called the devil, which means slanderer, and that is what he does to God, insisting that we have denied God, blasphemed him, broken his laws, etc., etc. In the New Testament, he is referred to as the enemy, which is obvious, and also as Belial, which means worthless, and Bilzebub, which means Lord of Dung. So, the Bible is quite clear he is not to be messed with or taken lightly. And throughout the scriptures, Satan and his demons speak and have moral intentions about doing evil. They are rational beings. So in the scripture from 1 John we read, it says, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The beginning of what? Where did Satan come from? And is he alone or are there others like him? Well, he is a fallen angel who has sinned against God and is one of many fallen angels. Several Old Testament passages are traditionally recognized as referring to Satan and his demons who were puffed up with pride and these angels, even when serving a perfect, happy God in perfect harmony, serving the one who created them, decided to rebel against God and were permanently cast out from his presence. Luke addresses this saying, the 72 came back rejoicing. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus said to them, 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And also in Jude, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains. And so they shall stay in gloomy darkness till the judgment. Now the angels who continue to serve our God properly and in holiness are elect angels. Paul commands Timothy regarding his conduct, not only in the presence of the Father and Jesus, but also the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules. So, there is election regarding the angels as to which ones would be holy and which ones would rebel and remain sinful and be under eternal judgment. Just as there is election regarding sinful human persons as to who is under eternal judgment, while others are redeemed through faith in Christ. For sinful all fallen angels, there is no hope of redemption as there is with human persons through Christ. So Satan, sometime before the world began, along with his demon angels, began a continual, fierce, intense battle ongoing to this day, now against us and God's purposes. And what of angels in general? How significant are they in God's working in the world, in space, and time, and thus how important in the story of humanity, sin, and redemption? Very much so. Satan is there in the garden when man began his sinful ways. An angel first appeared to Moses in the burning bush. An angel led the Israelites out of Egypt. An angel first announced the coming of Jesus to Mary, and also a multitude appeared over the fields at the birth of Jesus. Jesus was tempted to sin by an angel, Satan himself, and then, after 40 days, he was attended by angels. And at Gethsemane, Jesus was once again attended by angels. And angels were at the tomb, at the resurrection, and at the ascension. Of course, they will be there at the final judgment. So angels, good and bad, are a big deal to God. So the next question is, who is in charge here? Is God ultimately in control over the activities of the angels? The answer is yes. He created all things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Everything is ultimately under God's control. So then, if that is so, then what about the children of God, those who are saved and belong to him? How protected are they from the devil? Is our Abba Father going to shield us, thwart Satan and his evil schemes? Well, as we first read today from 1 John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus always accomplishes what he sets out to do, so then he came and therefore he must have destroyed the works of the devil. Yes, he did. 
In John 12, just before he goes to the cross, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And in Colossians, we read, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it, meaning the cross. And Hebrews says it very clearly that the children share in flesh and blood and that Jesus likewise partook of the same that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So, what God said in Genesis in the garden to the devil has been completed. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his, Jesus, heel. Jesus' death on that cross was the only way it was made possible for Paul to say this about you and I. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's Satan's domain, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And in the beloved son's domain, we have forgiveness of our sins. So, the victory over the enemy for us believers is in effect right now. Through that cross, he canceled that long record of our sins, that debt we owed, that justed demanded be punished, that list that the accuser, Satan, could wave at God and say, that one there, he or she's a sinner and deserves eternal death and judgment, that list is no longer valid for you if you have indeed seized hold of the forgiveness that is in Christ. So Satan's ultimate power is now null and void in the hearts of each person who is brought into the kingdom of God. Now Satan is a mortally wounded enemy, not dead, but severely wounded. Thus, we live in the between of Satan's being crushed and disarmed at the cross but not fully defeated, as he will be ultimately when he is cast into the lake of fire. Thus, it can be truly said in 1 John, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And even though John says a little later, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, we have ultimate victory over the evil one, but not yet fully realized. So, how defeated is this enemy? What is he doing now that Christ has made a public spectacle of him triumphing over him by the cross? Does he make havoc with true believers? How does he do it? Does God let him get away with it? Or cause it himself? Does God ultimately glorify himself in all things? What about our brother Job, just going about his life? Satan coming right to the throne of God, being given permission to ruin his wonderful life temporarily. 
Or how about sinful actions by people? Peter at the Last Supper. Jesus said to Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. God let Satan have his way with Peter, but ultimately Peter was redeemed. Recall Peter told Jesus there was no way he was going to let Jesus go get killed. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, lying to the Holy Spirit about keeping some of the money from the sale of the land. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In that lie, they kept back some of the money. Do we see anywhere in these scriptures the exact method that Satan actually used to cause these people to sin? We do not read about him whispering in their ears or possessing them. Yet the root of their sins involves Satan. It's a mystery. We can only know it is true. Satan does tempt believers to sin. In 2 Corinthians, after Paul speaks of a severe rebuking of a sinner in the church, but requires forgiveness through repentance, ending with, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul, he does not tell us how that works or that he knows how it works, but he is certain of one thing. Satan has schemes and Satan is trying to create havoc in the church and in your life. How? Things like giving you doubts about God's word to you, like deceiving Eve. Did he really say not to do that? Or how much does Jesus really care should a tragedy befall you? Or do you have that besetting sin which you seem powerless over again and again in your actions, perhaps? And then if you even control your actions, the temptation in your heart continues on, which the enemy never stops encouraging. You may say, Jesus, why did you make me like that? He might appeal to Jesus. It says right here in 1 John that if a person is born of God, he does not keep on sinning. He is protected and, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch him. Can that really be right? Well, that touch him really means is grasp him or seize him, not just put a finger on you. The best way I can think about this is the devil can't touch you in the sense that he can't ultimately harm you, believer. He may hurt you, yes, painfully hurt you like Job was. Weep bitterly like Peter did after denying Christ. Have a thorn in your flesh year after year all your life. But the devil, 
cannot ultimately harm you. Because damaging someone, that's harming them. But God allowing Satan to hurt you must ultimately be to his glory. God is still ultimately in full control. God declared to Moses something true about his absolute sovereignty over all things. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In Deuteronomy, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. But what if we are doing something really, really good? Well, even doing exactly what Jesus wants us to do doesn't mean that somehow Satan isn't going to wreck our plans. When Paul was determined to minister to the Thessalonians, his heart yearning eagerly for them, but unable to go to them, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan loves to do whatever he can to hinder the spread of the gospel. And if he can mess things up for Paul, he can surely do it to us, too. So we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, what reasons can there be for God allowing this evil angel and all his minions to roam the earth, causing pain and suffering? It's a long time between the fall of man in the garden and Satan finally being cast into the abyss. Through it all, is God extending his glory, fulfilling his purposes for we, his children? Peter tells us that throughout life, we may be grieved by various trials, but promises that our tested faith is more precious than gold, and thus that tested persevering faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, God used Job to show us what persevering faith is like. And Paul says himself, that his thorn in the flesh was for a reason he understood to keep him from becoming conceited. When Peter was about to deny Jesus, which Jesus said came at the request of Satan, we note Jesus finishes saying, when Peter has turned back, Peter will strengthen your brothers so God made it turn out for good. So, how do we deal with Satan and his legions of angels that war against us? When Paul speaks to us in Ephesians, he makes it clear there is a war going on, and most are familiar with Paul's instructions. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He makes it clear it's a spiritual war, and the way he describes it, we should be highly alarmed. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
Paul continues, the struggle is not about flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul's solution to this problem, to those fiery darts of the enemy, fasten on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the gospel as shoes for your feet, take up the shield of faith, take that helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, that is the word of God, pray at all times. Paul doesn't say to have anything to do directly with Satan. He says to focus on the gospel. Know the truth, walk in righteousness, know the word of God, pray at all times. We know that Jesus says Satan is a liar and the father of lies. When he lies, he's speaking his native language, so he tempts with lies. He tells nothing but lies. So the perfect antidote is the truth, the truth here in the scriptures. So if I know the truth, know it thoroughly, know it intimately, then when I hear the lie, even a really good one, I will catch myself and say, sorry, that is not true. Then I don't need to wonder. Is it my flesh that is rising up? Is it the devil tempting me? Is it both? Doesn't really matter because I'm just testing all things with the truth. I am outfitted for a battle. The Bible doesn't tell us to directly do battle with him. When Peter says he is a roaring lion looking to devour you, he says to resist him. Not to yell at him or rebuke him. Even Jude himself says in his book that when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, he did not rail against him, but left it up to God and said simply, the Lord rebuke you. Now, what about the devil's work in the world of non-believers? Clearly, Satan is roaming about the earth, executing his evil schemes upon both believers and unbelievers as best he can. But like a doctor with bad news for a terminal cancer patient outside of a miracle, there is little hope outside of the miracle of new birth and true saving faith in Christ, little hope for the world or unbelievers. Paul describes their situation if one is not a born-again believer. He says in 2 Timothy that if they were to come to know the truth and be saved, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That is, unbelievers are just naturally doing Satan's will. Paul says in Ephesians to believers about their life before Christ, 
back when they walked as dead men in their sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But then he adds this troubling description for non-believers, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Jesus said something really uncomfortable for non-believers, said by Jesus to some very religious people who think they are good with God, doing his will, that God really likes them. Jesus says to the Pharisees, and really, by extension, to all who reject Christ, from John, about why they don't understand, why they were unable to bear to hear him. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So some, what are some of the ways Satan keeps unbelievers in their state? Well, he tries to stop one from having the gospel even begin to do its work. Recall the parable of the four soils. Jesus explains that if a person hears the message about the kingdom and at that time does not really understand it, this happens. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. But there is a possibly more effective way that Satan can keep a person in unbelief. Imagine an enemy planning to undertake much destruction of many people. But he is alarmed when he finds someone about to announce his plans and the method of defense in advance to everyone so they can take action and survive. He must stop the word from getting out. But then the enemy realizes perhaps a better plan. Have the person who might give the warning rather say, have no fear, give false information so the victims take no action to be saved from the coming disaster. And so Satan uses the same very effective technique right in the churches of God. Give them a false gospel, one that cannot save, one like Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy. As time goes on, some people are not interested in sound teaching. They develop itching ears and gather around them special teachers. Why? To suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We should note how much the Bible talks about false teachers and Satan loves that kind of gospel. Was it not a really big deal even during the time right after Jesus walked the earth? Should we be concerned about the enemy using this very effective technique against believers and unbelievers? Well, Paul speaks to the church in Corinth. Seems they may be easily led away from their devotion to Christ. It happens when someone arrives and proclaims a different Jesus than Paul's Jesus, a different gospel than Paul's, and Paul says to them, you put up with it readily enough, we could go on. 
Jesus says many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and therefore to beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but are really wolves. Even Peter needed to be rebuked by Paul in Galatians. And there were many false apostles in Corinth. Peter says others will secretly introduce destructive heresies. John says many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jude writes his whole book about them, saying certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny Christ. Paul says to Christian leaders that even from within the church, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples. And on and on and on. Yes, Satan loves it when a false gospel is preached. It gives him a lot less to do. He need not always run around snatching the words that were sown from each person who heard the true gospel, but rather he may just let the deceived go on their way, believing they are right with God. Satan's greatest hope is to send people to hell where he is going to spend eternity. Now, if he can ruin your life in the meantime, all the better. Of course, nothing could be more ruinous than to be in eternal judgment, and Satan likes to inflict maximum pain and destruction. And Satan, he looks down from on high, sees everyone going about their life. And he is especially focused on unbelievers to try to keep them from becoming believers. He's happy to see those unbelievers caught up in the cares of this world, not concerned about the end of life. He wants to keep it that way, so he and his assistants study each one's weaknesses and know how to tempt them. He looks down and says, for example, look how I've adjusted that one there with a few lies. He is making it spending as much money as he can, distracted from the truth. Leave him alone for now. And those young ones there, oh, they are so easy to tempt, says Satan. Just a few lies, along with the wonderful temptations that the world puts in their face every day, which, of course, I've been largely responsible for myself. See now? They are using plenty of partying and immoral sex to occupy themselves. That is a really good one. Just a little monitoring to make sure they continue. Keep pointing them to what the culture says life is all about. And then he looks over the multitude of those in their minds. They don't do bad things. They do good things, feel pretty good about their future. They've never done anything bad enough to be in a fiery furnace forever. Satan leaves them alone. No adjustments needed there. He says, maybe I'll ruin their lives at some point with sickness or tragedy. But if not, my ultimate goal will be met. And he rejoices over the whole room 
because one of his greatest victories has been achieved. Few in the room even think he exists. But then he becomes greatly concerned. What is that he sees over there? There are a couple of unbelievers. But there is someone who belongs to Jesus coming near. That someone goes to them. That one Jesus sent tells them that no matter what the world tells you, or new advancement there is in modern medicine to keep you alive, time is short. He says, you've got to believe me, don't wait. There is a man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died a bloody death on the cross, taking the penalty for your sins, what you've earned. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just like every other person in this room. And when you truly understand what he really did die for you, for your forgiveness, you will believe in your heart like the Apostle Paul did. Then since God did not spare his own son, but sent him to that bloody cross to pay the penalty for your sins, if he did that, how will he not then do everything for your ultimate good, save you from hell, take you to heaven, uphold you, give you all good things now and forever. Let me tell you how profound this man is. Listen, if you receive him, something will happen to you that you now can't imagine. And you will say like the apostle Peter did, though you have not seen him, you love him. Imagine that. Someone you have never seen and you love him more than life, more than anything in the world. You believe in him and you will know that same amazing truth. And you realize how you will be able to trust him in all things like the apostle Paul did when he said he felt like he was literally going to die like he had the sentence of death. He said, oh wait, that means I have to rely upon God and can God really do all he promises? Well, yes, he even raises the dead. Yes, he can do all that he promises. And Satan waits to see if he's lost another one since he knows the gospel and God's mercy are the only antidote to his destructive powers in that unbeliever's life. Satan was there at the beginning of creation. He is the one who tempted Eve in the garden. And we know he will be there at the end of the age when the devil is thrown in to the lake of fire. So he is going to be around as long as we are on this earth. Of course, when Satan was done tempting Jesus, and Jesus had not failed whatsoever, the story ends with, and then the devil, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so for a believer, that is what the enemy is going to do 
every time he might leave you alone, he is going to wait until an opportune time. So, in the meantime, between attacks, we build ourselves up by knowing his word, knowing the truth intimately, because when he returns for the thousandth time, it will be something contrary to what is in this book, some type of lie. Look at the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer. Not too long a list of requests to God he lays out for us, but all very important. Praising his name, asking his will to be done, asking for daily bread, forgiveness of sins, and then asking to be delivered from the evil one. So, we do have an enemy always lurking about, but we know our hope, our help, is in God himself. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your amazing word, Lord, that in all ways tells us how to live life in this world that lies here on earth in the hands of the evil one. Although you have destroyed the works of the devil, Lord, by your glorious death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, he still lurks about, Lord, trying to create havoc with unbelievers and, and us as well. And yet, Lord, you have given us the full antidote to his evil schemes by giving us the truth. And the greater we take this word seriously, the, the greater and greater we know it in all of its detail, saturating our brain, Lord, we will so clearly see the lies of the enemy when they attack us. So, Lord, build us up in our most holy faith through your word. Keep reminding us day by day to search and search it so that we may continue persevering in the truth until that glorious day when we depart from here, Lord, to come to be in your, your presence. We thank you, Lord. Amen.